0: Hope she- Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity It's Saturday. Today is Saturday, March 8, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is Pragmatic Genesis, part 16, but which may be too long. It, it, we really. Been, been passed most of the two sea line of Genesis for quite some time. In fact, today we will barely discuss Genesis. However, in, in the last installment of this series, we discussed Simeon, Judah, and the Canaanite tribes in Israel, and left off in the middle of a discussion of the children of Judah through his son Shelah, as well as Judah's legitimate children with Tamar. These are the good and bad figs of Judah. The pity is that the way the mainstream churches reckon genealogy today, they would claim that Shelah represented legitimate children and the children of Tamar were bastards. Why do they have it backwards? One of the highlights of last week's scriptural exposition was, I believe, where we discussed Malachi 2, verses 10 and 11, in relation to the discourse between Christ and certain of those who opposed him, as it is recorded in John chapter 8. In Malachi, we read in chapter 2, that this is actually a, a sort of um, dialogue if you'll have it, almost like a Socratic dialogue, the prophet portrays the children of of Judah as saying, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Then in John chapter eight, and this needs to be cross-referenced directly to Malachi. I don't know if the um, if, if the the mainstream. Bible cross references do this or not I haven't checked John 8 verse 40 Christ says but now you seek to kill me a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God this Abraham did not do you do the deeds of your father then they said to him we be not born of fornication we have one father even God stop right there compare that clause in John 8:41 to Malachi 2:10. Joshua said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil." and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Right here, we have an absolutely unmistakable relationship and an understanding of the mystery of iniquity. Malachi's words at Malachi 2.10 are prophetic of the response to the Jews in Jerusalem Christ. When he accused them of not being legitimate, of not being children of God, we see why in Malachi chapter 10, chapter 2, because Judah married the daughter of a strange God and introduced Canaanite seed into Israel. No, I, I couldn't do any Genesis series without hearing once from Clifton Emmeheiser, and I've been um, pestering him for quite some time to do at least one of these segments with me. Clifton was a little under the weather earlier this year and he's feeling better now. Tonight, in order to continue this conversation, this presentation of the three tribes of Judah, I have Clifton Emelheiser here with me, and, and he's going to present his paper, The Three Tribes of Judah, which he had written probably 10, 12 years ago. Clifton, hello.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know where, just where you want to go from here. But, uh, well, well, you
0: had some additional references. to That's
1: that. what I wondered, if you wanted me to... Uh, and
0: we could discuss them I, I mean that would be a good starting point to get this kicked off
1: already quoted uh, Malachi 2:10 and 11 and um i found cross references uh for Malachi uh 2:10 and 11 uh uh it it goes with uh, Ezra 9 verses 1 and 2 now Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians... And the uh, uh, and the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. You have anything to say about that, or should I go to the next? One?
0: It's obviously that that um. The, the people that made this cross-reference understood that this reference in Malachi chapter 2 was a reference to Judas having married a Canaanite wife. And that was the reason why Judah married the daughter of a strange god. So they cross-referenced that to Ezra 9 verses 1 and 2 where we see that the children of Judea were doing this again and intermarrying with Canaanites. Now, the important thing to consider here is that Malachi was living at this very time of Ezra. That's when Malachi's prophecy was. Malachi was a prophet of the second temple period at the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. So Malachi, the prophet, is pointing out this problem. He's corroborating what's going on in in Ezra's report, in in his book, and he's using the patriarch Judah as an analogy. So we see that Malachi 2.10 actually is a double entendre. It's a prophecy speaking of what? the patriarch Judah did, but it's also describing what's going on at his very time.
1: Yeah, I, did, I believe these two passages are tied uh, pretty close to uh, to each other. Absolutely. They go hand in hand. And uh, uh, Ezra 9-2, this is just uh, quoted here, cross-references with Exodus 34, 14 through 16. For thou shalt worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, see, no, wait a I'm not reading this thing. For thou shalt worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a Jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land And they go whoring after uh, their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. And that thou take their daughters, and their sons, and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and their sons and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and make thy sons. Uh, go a-whoring after their gods.
0: So, so they're just cross-referencing the race mixing, which is occurring at the time of Ezra, what which Ezra is trying to to prevent and and actually is successful at reversing in Ezra chapter ten, and that they're making that reference back to the warnings about that all the way in the Exodus in. in
1: chapter 34 right and that, the, the next reference is from Exodus um, Exodus, Exodus um, 34 well, that's what we just read there um, Exodus,
0: 34 cross references with Deuteronomy
1: 7-3 go ahead and read it
0: neither shalt thou make marriages with them thy daughter shall not give unto his son nor his son shall take unto thy son. So, so the commentators understand that what Malachi said in, in Malachi chapter 2 concerning Judah and, and what's going on in Ezra chapter 9 and, and these commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they understand it's all about race mixing. Even if they don't use the term race mixing, they do understand that.
1: Yes, and... Um Ezra 9.2 also cross-references with 2 Corinthians uh, 6.14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness?
0: Right, and I I would translate that a little differently. It's quite different in the Christian New Testament. But that's okay. We'll leave it at this. The important thing to note is that your commentaries didn't cross-reference Malachi 2.10 with John 8.41. That, to me, is exactly where it should be cross-referenced.
1: Well, you don't get everything from the cross-references.
0: Well, right, but that's the most crucial point. To show, you know, they understand this is all about race fixing, but they didn't want to elucidate that in the New Testament where it needs to be shown that the opposition which Christ has was not from true Israelites, it was from the Canaanite Edomite people of Judea. And if they'd have made that cross reference, Maybe they'd have found two seed lines because these people are Canaanites and Christ connects them with, with Cain.
1: Well, one more verse from uh, Malachi 2, uh, 10 and 11. Uh, at, at Malachi two twelve 12, uh, it follows, uh, of course, Malachi two ten and 11. Um, um but it, it cross it um cross references ne- Nehemiah it'd be verse twelve across cross references Nehemiah thirteen, twenty six through thirty. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was Beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did, did outlandish women cause to sin. Uh, and when they say outlandish men, they're talking about other races. Yes, right. Uh, outlandish women, rather. Uh, shall we then hearken unto you uh, to do all this great evil? Shall we? Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Judiah, the son of Elisabeth, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him uh, from me. Uh, uh, that's a good idea. You you, you get a Hornite in camp and, and you chase him out. You don't leave him, uh, stick around. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them, uh, them from all strangers and appointed wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business.
0: Now, now I've established another scholarship that that, um, in in others of my papers that Nehemiah actually preceded Ezra. He didn't follow Ezra, as most people believe. And, And in Ezra chapter 10, it explains that the people of the land that had done this race mixing at his time, which is the 5th century B.C., that they actually did put away the strange, wi- the strange wives and those who were born of them. So they put away the strange wives and they put away the bastard children. Uh, of course, that there was further mixing in the second century B.C. With the, when the Edomites were converted to Judaism and absorbed into the kingdom.
1: Well, I, I read in some Jewish um, history that... Uh... Actually, the Levites took some of their wives back after they got rid of them. Well, I don't that, know, how, that's, I don't that's know if that's true or not, but I thought I'd add that.
0: Well, well, then the Jews are admitting that they're Canaanites. That the um, it's it's not incredible. Uh, we don't have records of it. There's no records of it. Not not that there were no records after um. The prophets of the period, which are Malachi, Zechariah, and Habakkuk, and I think maybe Haggai, I'm not positive. Those four prophets, at least three of them are are Second Temple prophets, maybe a fourth. But um, after those prophets and Ezra and Nehemiah, there are no reliable records until Josephus and the book of the Maccabees pick up about 155, 156 B.C. There were no records at all. Josephus, in, in his history, in between Ezra and um, and the time of the Maccabees, he really only has a couple of things. One of them is the book of Esther. He He accepted that as canon. And another is a very short story about... Alexander the Great and his taking of um, Tyre and his entry into Jerusalem. That's it. it it's not much at all. So, so there's very little is known about Judea in the years between perhaps 450, 440 B.C. all the way down to 160, 155 B.C., um, uh, except for the few mentions that are in Greek records. So there's really not much.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you want to t- talk about the good and bad figs yet, but I, I. Um,
0: oh, right. but well, we. I think you may want to discuss the order of Shlaz's sons first, and and then Judah's sons or the good and bad figs. I, I thought we'd hear it from you. What well, we, I
1: had some uh, three more references there. Um, where you quoted. Uh, Matthew uh, two six. Um, remember, you quoted that. Yes. And I, I found two other uh, references back at it, but maybe uh, yeah, I, I should do that at a different time. Well,
0: well, maybe we could do it now. Let, let's, yeah, you know, Matthew two six is a quote from from Micah chapter five, verse six, where it says, "And now Bethlehem, in the land of Judah." are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of these shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now, now I'd like to give a little background on this, and maybe we could discuss it. You, you know, there's a sect that call themselves Christian identity, that they're not by any means, that they, um, they have several major heresies. They're actually kind of popular Around the neck of the woods where I live now, in, in East Tennessee and, and southwestern Virginia and, and um, western North Carolina, it's the, the, the buddy Johnson Cruz, Russell Walker, Scott and Charles Bott. They're all clowns. None of them are Bible scholars. They just pretend to be, and, and they believe that Christ came from the tribe of Ephraim. And and they twist every single passage in the Bible which tells us plainly that Christ came from the tribe of Judah. And they do that because they're under the mistaken impression that the Jews are Judah. And Christ couldn't have come from the same tribe as the Jews because they're wicked. So Christ must be of the tribe of Ephraim. This is it's really not one heresy. It's really a whole string of heresies, and they have no place in Bible scholarship whatsoever. It's sad, but sometimes these things just got to be addressed. So, so that's the, some of the groundwork here. We have to understand that there were three tribes of Judah, and two of those tribes were entirely legitimate tribes. And it's those tribes which gave us the kings of Judah and Siah and and and, and for for many, many centuries, and this can be established, many of the kings of Europe. So so it's important to understand the, the three tribes of Judah and and that Judah is not the Jews, even though some of the people of Judah did mingle with the Jews and and these Edomites and Canaanites who are known as Jews today and that the Jews of today are really descended from the Edomites and Canaanites and then perhaps some of them are descended from a small portion of Judah in part but that hardly gives them claim to being the tribe of Judah. It's like saying that a nigger with one-eighth European blood is is a white man. It, it's just not so.
1: I found uh, two cross references that uh, sort of su- supports um, uh, the Bethlehem part of this thing.
0: Right. Uh, well, well, you're welcome to read them and and we'll discuss them because the second one is the important
1: one. Matthew uh, two six cross references with. John seven forty two. 42. Um, not the scripture said that Christ come of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was?
0: And, and that's a direct reference to the scripture we just re- read at, Malachi, at Micah 5, 6, right? Uh,
1: it couldn't be any clearer. Uh, uh, it couldn't be any clearer. That, well, the next uh, one will... Up a little bit farther. Um uh, John seven forty two cross references with Luke 24, and Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David.
0: And this shows that now these Ephraim Skeptic heretics, that they actually assert that there was another Bethlehem in Galilee, and that's the Bethlehem Christ came from. But John 7.42 is important because it clearly demonstrates that Joseph, the stepfather of Christ, let's call him that, Joseph left Galilee to go to Bethlehem. If he left Galilee to go to Bethlehem, then Bethlehem is not in Galilee. It's that simple. There, there was archaeologists have have discovered a town. I believe it were, it was in the land of Zebulun in Galilee. I could be wrong about that, but but they did discover that there was another town at one name name at one time named Bethlehem, and it was in Galilee. I believe that's a legitimate discovery. I think I saw. I think, and I'm saying that this is in your um Ephraim Scepter heresy series, I believe, Clifton.
1: Yeah, right.
0: There's at least a discussion of it. But but John seven forty-two and and so much other biblical history proves that the Bethlehem, the city of David, was in Judah. And John seven forty-two shows that Joseph left Galilee to go to the city of David. The um the, the importance of this, it, it, it's, the, the Ephraim scepter heresy isn't important until you have to deal with the clowns that, that promote it. One of them, and this is posted in the Christogenia Forum, it, it's in a section called Christian Idiot Entity. It's a play on the words idiot and identity. It, it's under a topic called Stupidest Sayings Ever. And this is from an email I received from one of the proponents of this Ephraim Skepta heresy, and it says, in regard to the Christoghenean New Testament, it says, Think has mistranslated the Micah 5.2 to Matthew 2.6 translation, just as it is in the King James and Luther's Bible. And what I asked this person was, how could I make a translation of Matthew 2.6 from Micah 5.2? I didn't look at Micah 5 2 when I translated Matthew 2 6. What I did was I looked at the Greek manuscript, which has Matthew 2 6 in it in, in the ancient Greek, to translate Matthew. 2. That's how stupid the Ephraim scepter people are, but it, it's there, and a lot of people are caught up in it, and it has to be addressed at least from time to time. With all certainty, Christ came from the tribe of Judah. And, and we'll probably get to more proofs of that later. They're, they're replete in the Revelation that it's mentioned several times in Paul and in every single one of the Gospels. When you look at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, the, the genealogy of Christ comes down through Judah, not through Ephraim. It, it's, it, these people really twist the Bible up into pretzels to purport that they're trash.
1: Uh, Did you want me to go through the um, uh, different places in in the different articles I've written uh, that um, sets the uh, sons of Judah in the proper place? Well, well,
0: why don't we get to that, but first present your paper, The Three Tribes of Judah.
1: Hey, I just wondered where you wanted to go from there.
0: That'd be okay. That might be better, because this this I want to get in, right?
1: Okay. The three tribes of Judah. If you are among the many who never realize realized, there are three different tribes of Judah. Don't feel bad, for most of the clergy are not aware of that fact either. Strange that such should be the case, for it's their responsibility to understand and to teach such things by accepting. Um, compensation under such false pretenses, they fall under a most dishonorable biblical category of hireling. Uh, One may not realize it, but our Bibles don't speak very highly of those who identify themselves as pastors or shepherds under such circumstances. Isaiah 65:10 exposes them thusly. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, Everyone one for his, his gain from his quarter. Uh, one may very quickly detect whether or not a pastor or priest is qualified for his office when, for instance, he makes the statement, Abraham was a Jew. This type of verbalization is preposterous for Abraham was the great-grandfather of Judah. The next time you hear a so-called minister make such an unqualified remark, uh, you can mark it down in your book that he isn't the Bible scholar he pretends to be. It then becomes your biblical duty to muzzle that dumb dog and challenge him to explain how such a thing could be. After all, he by accepting your money uh, your life's blood is using you to proliferate his false uh, statements. Not only that, but by declining to reprove him, you became you become part and parcel of his untruthfulness and become as guilty as he. Anything, Bill?
0: Well, well, not yet. I mean, it's it's. It, it, if any any pastor calls Abraham a Jew, he, he's an idiot. And the way I, I've addressed that in the past was to ask them, if Abraham's a Jew, then who is Ishmael? And and, and that they would usually respond, oh, he's the father of 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 the Arabs. Well, well, the response would be, if Abraham's a Jew, then Ishmael has to be a Jew, doesn't he? <laughs> And they usually don't know how to deal with that. It's To call Abraham a Jew is absolutely ridiculous. To call Judah a Jew is ridiculous, too. To call any Israelite a Jew is ridiculous. But with with these mainstream um, churchianity people who who are just so ignorant, you have to start somewhere. And that's a good place to start. Abraham can't be a Jew. It's like calling... um, I don't know, it's like calling Robert Bruce an American because there are Scottish people in America.
1: Another situation that should start waving red flags in one's mind is when a minister or priest starts using the terms Jew and Israel interchangeably. The house of Judah is not the house of Israel, and the house of Israel is not the house of Judah but must be uh, differentiated. Such unqualified verbiage exposes either their ignorance or subversion concerning biblical matters. The object of this paper is to show what the clergy has failed to reveal, namely that there are three different houses within the tribe of Judah. It would appear that it would appear the only way we are going to make any logic out of this confusion is to go back to the beginning of the story of Judah. According to Genesis 29:35, we are told Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, Israel. Judah, we are informed, married a Canaanite woman by the name of Bathsheba. By her, Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The Almighty destroyed Ur and Onan, leaving only Shelah. Upon the death of Judah's wife, uh, Bathsheba, Judah's intended daughter-in-law, Tamar, dressed up like a whore and enticed Judah, who fathered a set of twins by her, named Perez and Zerah. Because Judah was an eligible widower and Tamar was unwed, uh, marriage not consummated with Er and Onan, the union could not be considered, you know, the Tamar and in, in, uh, in, in Judah could not be considered illicit.
0: No, because no, technically she she was unwed. She 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 never had a consummated marriage. Technically, and the only
1: way she could be married is she had a white partner.
0: Even if she had her husband, her husband's dying. Yeah, yeah, right. If I'm looking at this from the churchianity viewpoint, but of course she was not married if she was fornicating. If you're married to somebody who's not a white. Partner, then you're not married. You're kidding yourself. You're just committing fornication. It might be fornication licensed by the government, but you're you're still fornication in in the eyes of of biblical law. That the bottom line is that the two Canaanites that she was married to were both dead, so she was an available woman. She was also entitled to. Redemption under the Hebrew law, she was entitled to a child from the next of Cain. She only got what she was entitled to.
1: Right. Thus, there were three branches of Judah one Perez, two Zerah, and three Shelah. Therefore, there were Perez Judaites, Zerah Judaites, and Shelanite Judaites. Among their other hybridizations, uh, most, if not all, of the Judean scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees at Messiah's time were more closely genetically related to the Shelanite Judaites uh, from Judah's first wife, Bathsheba the Canaanite. Uh, this demands yet another important question to be asked: who then were the Canaanites?
0: And, and let me say that the, the, the scripture that we just read, Malachi 2:10 and John 8:41, that there's a clear prophetic connection there in, in, in that because Judah married the daughter of a strange God, that these people in Judea who opposed Christ, did not hear his voice. Now, we usually play up the Edomite connection to to the people in the temple because that connection is historically documented and that's also the way Paul explains the division in Romans in Romans chapter 9, the division in Judea. But there's also... And that's ostensible, a, a, a Shelahite connection, and we see that in Daniel. In, in Susanna, in, which I quoted um, last week, that there's a statement from Daniel concerning two corrupt Judean judges, and he tells them that they're the seed of Canaan. They can't be the seed of Judah because they were so corrupt. A tree is known by its fruits. Now, now, a lot of people may scoff at Susanna and say, well, that's not in, in the canon. That's in the Apocrypha. But it's very clear that the writing, which we know as Susanna, that book existed in the 4th century B.C. I don't care if you want to call it canonical or not. I believe it's canonical. I believe that it should preface the current book of Daniel that we have in our Bibles today. However, it doesn't matter. The book is as old as the 4th century B.C., and it clearly tells us that there are Canaanites in Judah. It It's it uh, hand in hand with everything Jeremiah says, everything Malachi says, except that it's a little more explicit.
1: Well, he's asking who the Canaanites were then. Uh, Canaan is the name of the fourth son of Ham on whom Noah placed a curse. Uh, being cursed, Canaan w- was exiled from his family, consequently mingled with other tribes, and eventually became 10 interrelated racially mixed nations listed at Genesis 15:19 through 21 as one, the Kenites, two, the Kenizzites, Three the Katamites, uh four Hittites, five Perizzites, six Rephiams, uh seven Amorites, eight Canaanites, uh, nine Girgashites, and ten Jebusites. And I, you've probably got quite a bit to say about those different uh, groups.
0: Well, well, some of these groups aren't listed in Genesis chapter ten at all. So, so, therefore, it, it's ostensible that, or, or it's evident that they don't have any relationship with Adam. Amongst them are the Cadmonites and the Kenizzites. I don't really remember about the Girgashites. They may be in Genesis 10, they may not. The, the, the others are listed in Genesis 10 as Canaanite nations. Amongst them are the Hittites the Amorites, the Canaanites, of course, and the Jebusites. But the Canaanites are the descendants of Cain. The Rephaim are the remnant of the giants left over from the flood. This is demonstrated in other scriptures that the Canaanites are the descendants of Cain. Well, we can prove in the words of Christ In John chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 11, that there are descendants of Cain who are in opposition to him. In Luke chapter 11, he says to to his opposition in Judea that they were responsible for all the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And if they're responsible for the blood of Abel, they have to be descendants of Cain. Because only Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Now, in John chapter 8, he tells these people three things, his opposition. I know you are Abraham's seed. That would be true of Edomites, and that would be true of Shelahites. Technically, they're Abraham's seed. They're descended from Abraham. And he says, but you seek to kill me. You do the works of your father. So, We see there's a connection of these people to Abraham, and Christ admits it. What is that connection? Christ tells them that they're not of his father, that their father is a devil and is a murderer from the beginning. Only Cain can be a murderer from the beginning. He also told them that his father is not their father. Which means that they, God, is not their father. Now they protested that, which is prophesied in Malachi two ten. But God is not their father because Cain is not of Adam. Cain can't be of Adam. If Cain were of Adam, Cain would be of God. It's that simple. Cain,
1: what, what we could,
0: what we could say that, um, oh, oh, he was a bad boy, so that's why he wasn't Adam's son. Well, well, that doesn't hold up anywhere in the rest of Scripture. And Cain was a devil. He was a devil. People are called devils in the Bible because their very existence is in opposition to the law of God. If Cain was Adam's son, that couldn't be. There are many other ways to demonstrate, and, and, and I believe I did early on in this series, that Cain was indeed not. Adam's son, and that's why he was a devil, and he was a murderer. So, so we see these people that oppose Christ—they have to be descendants of Cain, from Luke eleven and John eight. That's the words of Christ. They have to be seed of Abraham, which means that they must be mixed with Canaanite blood, and we see that in Esau a descendant of Abraham who mingled with the Canaanites, and with Judah, a descendant of Abraham who had a Canaanite wife. So these people had to be Shelahites, that's the Malachi 2.10 connection, or Edomites, and that's actually historically verifiable and verifiable in other places in Scripture, such as Romans chapter 9. Now the Canaanites were mingled with the Kenites and the Rephaim. So... Basically, the seed of serpent, the seed of Cain is all represented in these ten Canaanite nations, as well as the children of, of the giants, which resulted from the mix, race mixing of Genesis chapter 6. So that, that they're all one big genetic cesspool, and they keep weaseling their way into Israel and Judah.
1: Uh, one thing that I uh, didn't mention in this uh, article when I wrote it, and it probably it should be mentioned here, is um, why Canaan got a curse on him, and um, uh, what actually happened. Ham Ham had incest with his mother, and a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of them say, "Well, he had homosexual." relations with his father but you can find a lot of scriptures that the father's nakedness is his wife
0: well, well that's Leviticus chapter 20 verse 11 he who has uncovered his father's nakedness has slept with his father's wife Leviticus I believe that's Leviticus twenty
1: eleven. but anyway the curse was put on Canaan because of that, and when if there's a curse on a son, he's automatically kicked out of the family.
0: I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Leviticus 27 says, a man, And the man that lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Now, the curse of Canaan came in, in Genesis immediately after Noah realized what had happened. And, and the next account, Noah's cursing Canaan. Noah finds that Canaan uncovered his nakedness. There's not, no biblical explanation outside of the, the Leviticus 2011 law stating that he that has slept with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. For Canaan to be cursed, Ham wasn't cursed, and Ham had other sons who were not cursed. Only Canaan was to be cursed, and, and Canaan is the last, and, and listed you know, distinctly from Ham's other sons, he he must have been the product of that, that shameful incident. He must have been a product of incest.
1: Well, I think any father that would have a son, you know, if I had a son that got my wife pregnant, you know, I don't think I'd be very happy about it, and I'd probably put a curse on him too.
0: Well, absolutely you'd have to put away your wife because if,
1: if there's a curse on him that, then he can't marry with anybody else in the family, right. It's like being disinherited and you're out of the family, and at that time, there was hardly anything to mix with except these other groups and and that i i I believe that's how the Canaanites got in that's and they even called the whole group Canaanites, you know. Uh, uh collectively they're they canaanites but um but anyway since uh the Kenites are mentioned first, let's see who they are uh, who they were checking the Strong's concordance we find uh the Kenites listed at seven oh one seven that's number one seven number seven oh one seven uh going to Strong's uh, Hebrew, uh dictionary under uh, number 7017 and number 7014, we discover the Canaanites are descendants and, and named after Cain. Thus we find the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the uh, Judaites, at the time of the Messiah were already Of the cursed bloodline of Cain, Uh, what is?
0: You have that they were actually of the cursed bloodline of Cain. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, they were actually. Well, well, there's another thing too. They had two curses on them. They had the curse of Cain and they had the curse of Canaan.
0: Absolutely, and Christ verifies that the the children of Cain. John eight, Luke eleven. It's it's hard not to um, not to be able to see that. It's pretty plain in both
1: places. Anyway, I said what a sticky, wicked business turned out to be. Uh, few there are who are aware of this not so well-known uh, fact. It is possible that Messiah was correct when he accused the Shilanite, uh Judaite, Pharisees, and Sadducees of being guilty of all the righteous blood, from Abel to Zacharias, Matthew uh, 23, verse 35, and Luke 11, uh, verse 51. That was a question, by the way. Uh, is it possible? And yeah, it is possible. Uh, if this is true, we have an entirely different kind of situation going on in our world today than the majority of people are aware. Thus, it is safe to conclude that the Shilinite Judaites are not the uh, Zerah Judaites, and the Zerah Judaites are not the Perez Judaites, nor are the Perez or Zerah Judaites to be identical with the Shilinite Judaites. From this, it should be quite clear uh, the spuriousness of lumping all of Judah into one basket. Yet this is exactly what the majority of the mainstream clergy do. In addition to combining the three tribes of Judah together under one category, they dump the house of uh, Judah and the house of Israel into one basket. Thus they make the entire thing one great one giant uh conglomeration of confusion with such incompetence, it would be a miracle if we got anything in its proper historical order
0: that they're blind that their blindness leads them to overlook so many things that because they have to. That they read the Bible in order to reach the conclusion that these people, known as Jews, are Israel, and in order to also um, basically excuse them for all the reasons why they would be persecuted in every nation they've ever been to. That they look at the pogroms against the Jews as the persecution of God's people, when in fact that's actually contrary. To the promises and the word of
1: God, absolutely contrary. The the um.
0: In addition to this, the Kenites were also the scribes in 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 certain places, Judah, and and we see that in one Second
1: Chronicles two five five, I think.
0: Well, well, I was referring to one Chronicles chapter two.
1: Okay, that's 1 Chronicles 2.55 then.
0: Yes, 1 Chronicles is where the genealogies are.
1: But that's it. Well, uh, the next thing we're going to get into is um, um, in connection with Zerah Judah. In connection, in considering Zerah Judah branch, we have strong classical secular evidence of their migrations in addition to uh that found in the Holy Writ. I will now quote from the book entitled Uh Abraham's
0: Father Abraham's,
1: Abraham's Children by uh Perry Edward Powell, uh PhD pages uh, uh, ninety eight through one oh one and Bill I know you you have um uh doubt, you know doubts about some some of the things that Paul says but would you read it-
0: yeah, yeah i'll read from from um
1: maybe a comment as you go along
0: i'll quote it let let us put it in a different way. Here is the beginning of royalty. What else does scepter mean? And and Judah was promised the scepter, Genesis chapter 49. But let me say this before I get into this um, Perry Edward Powell quote too far. Let me say that when when you read Genesis chapter 49, you'll see that the horns of Joseph would push his people to the ends of the earth. You see a lot of other things um, of, of the 12 tribes of Israel promises from their father Jacob of the things that would befall them in the future. And those things never happened in Palestine, that the ends of the earth are not in Palestine. The, um, the scatter of Judah is also not in Palestine. The horns of Joseph did indeed push his people to the ends of the earth. And that process began before the exodus. And there is historical documentation of that in some of my papers on Christogenia. I'm not the only one that's written about it, but I know what my own writing says. Theodorus Siculus is one who gave an account of the Exodus from the Egyptian perspective and admitted that many of the strangers in Egypt, a reference to the Hebrews, had, had founded many colonies throughout the Mediterranean and even in Greece. And we see the, the, these connections of, of Judah through his, son, through his grandsons or, or their really great-great-great-grandsons or whatever, through, through the sons of Mahal. And this is in the paper on Christagenia. It, it's a quote of Two kings, I think it's chapter four, verse 35, or verse 36, where, where Solomon is compared in wisdom to a lot of great men who descended from Judah. And um, among these men are names the names Calcol and Darda, and Darda is the same name as the legendary founder of Troy. And Chalcol is the same name as the legendary founder of the the, the district of the Greeks, later called Pamphylia in Anatolia. And when we go to um, Strabo and and to Diodorus Siculus, we can find, and and this material is on on Christ again also, we can find that the Phoenician settlements and colonies around the Mediterranean, the Colicians and, and um, the Malaysians and other related peoples, the Carians before it was called Malaysia. The, these people took their kings from the Trojans. So, so there are clear connections. We have a whole story of Judah that if you don't understand, there was three tribes of Judah, you'll never understand Christian identity. If you don't, if if you're confronted with this, and and this is the the people I do a Bible study with in Louisiana, that this is their answer and it's the best answer I've heard. When you try to explain Israel identity to people, and and, and these promises in Genesis that, that Joseph would push his people to the ends of the earth, that Ephraim would be a great nation, that Manasseh or a company of nations. I might have that backwards, right? And and people tell you, oh, you're teaching British, British Israel. The response to that is, no, you're not. You're teaching Genesis 48 and 49. That's what you're teaching, because these things, they did come true. With that, we will quote from Perry Edward Powell. Let us put it in a different way. Here is the beginning of royalty. What else does Scepter mean? Judah led in the conquest of Canaan and received the first and choicest portion. David raised it to preeminence over the tribes and the nations. He is the first king of the judah Phares line, Judah's son Phares. And he did not appear for 700 years, meaning after the time of that Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 49, which is about right. Was there and is there an older line of royalty? The answer is yes. The Judah Zara line was royal from the beginning. The two royalties are now merged and have been for centuries, and, and this is, I I, I, I don't uh, this is thinly documented. There may be some truth to it. I don't argue with it too much, but I would like to see the documentation someday, right? The two, lo- the two royalties are now merged and have been for centuries in the British royal house. And how long shall we have royalty? Until Shiloh comes. That, that's what the scripture says. Shiloh came to Bethlehem, the first advent and will come again at the end of time, the second advent. Well, I would say that Shiloh means peace in Hebrew, and, and Christ said in the first advent that he came not to bring peace. That's saved for the second advent. Royalty is eternal. The throne of David is everlasting. There is no royalty in Europe but descends from Judah. And the judah era royalty is, we repeat, 700 years older than Judah Pharaoh's, because it began at once. You can read Genesis 38 to see how royalty began, but there is much more to talk about. That, that's actually Clifton's interjection. He's not, not going to go through that. Let me say that royalty did begin with Zarah because it was the Zara Judah branch that was supplying kings from its princes to all of the ostensibly Israelite colonies across the Mediterranean, namely the, the people of the Phoenicians and, and the, the, even the people of Manasseh, if you want to accept that the Dorian Greeks came from Dor and were of the tribe of Manasseh. The Trojans were supplying princes to them. There's um, two groups of people after Troy was destroyed. This is historical. This is all I could find it all in old history books. It's all on my website in one place or another. There's two groups of people that descended from the Trojans, two primary groups. And those two groups are the Romans and the Illyrians. And even in the um, the 6th century A.D., Justinian, the great emperor, he was said by Procopius, who was a contemporary of Justinian and a member of his court. He was said to be an Illyrian from the tribe of the Justinians. So while we can't record every king of antiquity, we can see Judah, Zara in many places of antiquity, Julius Caesar. He claimed descent from Ahenius. Ahenius was a Trojan prince. Back to um, to Clifton's quote from Perry Edward Powell. Another great event. Is recorded in Genesis chapter 46 verse 12, dare we mention it. Here we can read the census of those of the family of Jacob who went with him to Egypt, eventually into Egyptian bondage, though they did not know it at the time. Pharez took with him his two sons, now Zara went alone. No son accompanied him. We will see where the son later traveled. Here is the inference and the conclusion. The Trojan-Roman-Welsh bypass the Egyptian captivity and all other captivities and have never been in slavery to any man in any land at any time. Now, let me say this, and, and this is me speaking, that the, um, he, he may be right about this. Zara did go to Egypt with no sons, but tribe, tribes of Zara K did come out of Egypt. So it's very possible that Zara had sons, and, and they did go to Egypt. That I can't dispute it, but I don't know how Perry Edward Powell would know that. I don't know what book he read, because I never read it. But Zarahites came out of the captivity. They're listed in the book of Numbers in both of the censuses. They're listed, they're mentioned later in Scripture, in fact, Ethan and, and um, Heman were actually contemporaries of, of David and wrote some of the Psalms. So it, it's, um, Solomon was compared to them in wisdom along with Calcol and Darda. It's very clear that Zarahites came out of Egypt. Back to Perry Edwards Powell. Zara's son Ethan, very wise, and indeed this line of Judah Zara is the only royal line termed wise, on the other hand, led his people north from Egypt where he was born into what is now Asia Minor. And the son Mahal continued likewise. I would say that we can, um, well, we can corroborate that of Mahal, but not of Ethan. Behold's heir, Darda, reached the western shore, where on a commanding site he founded the metropolis of Troy. The date is 1520 B.C. Here the city flourished for nearly 400 years. Darda first saw the straits that separated Europe and Asia and gave them his name, the Dardanelles. I, I don't know if that's true, but it is ostensible that the Dardanelles are named after Darda, the legendary founder of Troy, who founded Troy by all Greek accounts. Darda also founded a fort here that is named after him. But the greatest honor is recorded in the Bible. Solomon was wiser than all men, than Darda, the son of Mehol. Thus great was the founder of Troy and the sire of the Trojan race whose children abide with us still. Troy fell, because their sons had an eye for the refined and beautiful in women. Her descendants had that exquisite eye still and are naturally very proud of the accomplishment. Perry Edward Powell is referencing the story of Helen of Troy and Paris' lust. Paris was also a Trojan prince. He had another name that was Alexandros. He was known as Alexandros by the Greeks and Paris by the Romans. The, the, um, the story of Darda and the founding of troy is that dara came from crete originally and 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 that doesn't mean that that's where he was born or anything but he 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 is traced by the greeks to be first in crete and, and then to be in an island called Samos Race, Samos Race, samothrace samothrace s a m o t h r a c e it wasn't originally called that but it was later in history and samothrace is just on the coast, off the uh, off the northern tip of Anatolia, where Troy was, it's on the coast in the sea, uh, just off the Troad. So, so we see the Greeks admit that Dara did not come from Troy. He didn't come from Anatolia. Anatolia. He didn't even come from Greece. He came from the islands, and 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 eventually the colony later known as Troy was founded. Troy is actually after one of Darda's sons or grandsons, whose name was Troas. When Troy fell, she did so to arise on another shore, in eternal and imperial splendor. I am not referring to Italy. That empire, though long, was ephemeral. Short-lived, Italy is an interlude only. Ahenius, a member of the old royal family, attained the kingship, led the saddened Trojans around the Mediterranean Sea, as graphically described in the Aheniad, and finally brought them to their new home on the Tiber in Italy, including this interlude, the Trojan period embraced 417 years. Here on the Tiber happened a very sad event, too sad to be recalled and would not be except for its denouement. Brutus was one day hunting with his father Silvius, when he spied the prey, as he thought, and let fly an arrow. On running up, he was shocked and grieved to find that he had killed his own father. Some people then, as now, were censorious, and Brutus departed from the new colony which, from which later sprang Rome and with his royal followers went to Greece, rallied the enslaved Trojans, defeated King Pendrasus, thus erasing the defeat of Troy, and his victor exacted these terms, he must give his daughter Ignoge for wife, furnish a big fleet of ships fully provisioned for his emigrant force of 7,000 men, and free permission for them to sail unmolested." Brutus now, with an object in direction, steered west through the Straits of Hercules, then northward along the East Atlantic Main, across the English Channel to the present river Dart, and up its stream to the Tatmiz, where, stepping on a large stone, he landed on the Great Island, which was ever to bear his name as a memorial among the proud nations of the world. This rock, more famous throughout the centuries than Plymouth Rock, is marked as Brutus Rock, and has been visited perennially by people of all nations, all ranks, and all ages. With his people, he explored the whole island, and he apportioned to each one according to his ranks and services. At last, he decided the proper place for his capital, a choice bank of the Fames river, so named for a stream, Theamis, in Apiris, which is a city in Greece, or in Anatolia, from which he first sailed, and there he built his... Metropolis, and according to the advice of the oracle, he named it Trinovantum, New Troy. This name it bore for over 1100 years until King Lud, at the beginning of the Christian era, built her walls and named her Ludin. Lud's Wall, easily refined into London. London is also derived by some from Landin, meaning sacred eminence. London dates from 350 years before Rome. Why should Rome be called the eternal city? Well, well, I would say that Damascus, even though it's been filled with sand niggers for, for, for 1,500 years, Damascus actually dates to the time of Abraham and before. So so Rome, neither Rome nor London should be the eternal city. But let me say this. I know that Perry Edward Powell is getting a lot of his information here from the poet, the Roman poet, the Roman poet Virgil, who was a contemporary of Julius Caesar and, and something of a Julius Caesar butt-kisser. Yeah, I said it. Now, now Virgil, he had recorded the, the, the travels of Bohemius to Rome. That was not novel. That story is actually told in... in nearly all of, the, all of the Greek classics of, of any note that, that I myself have read. I mean, it's mentioned in many of the Greek classics that the Romans descended from the Trojans. I accept it as truth because it has so many witnesses, and, and, and the archaeological and the historical record fits perfectly. Now, now aside from that, Virgil, in the first century BC, told the story about Silvius Brutus and, and his flight to to what we know today as Britain. That's true. Virgil did tell that story. I just wish that I could corroborate it out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, right? I, I wish I could corroborate it, and, and um, until I can... I would like to um, kind of put that story on the back burner. In, in my own mind, it, it's out there. I'm, I'm, I can't pull it back. It, it's a lot of writers have written it be, be, besides me, and, and I, I'm not really anybody. It's, um, it, it's just that I wouldn't buy that story completely until I saw it in an older source. And, and that's for my own consciousness, for my own good conscience, I should say. That Now, aside from that, I did read a book many years ago, and I would like to read it again because I read this book before I read so many of the classics. And the book is called Prehistoric London. It was from the early 1900s, and it was by a gentleman called E.O. Gordon. That book did have some convincing evidence in it, that there is a Trojan presence in Britain at an early time. And for that reason, I've generally accepted the story, but I would like to be able to corroborate it further in the histories. Virgil writing in the first century, and Virgil writing at a time when the Romans are attempting to conquer Britain he's way too susceptible to, to um, creating or repeating propaganda. Now, was Virgil above propaganda? No. And, and I'll tell you why. Because in the Aeneid, Virgil creates a device in his story which basically kind of assists Rome in another dispute with another enemy the Carthaginians. And Virgil basically invents a relationship in the Aeneid between the Carthaginian Queen Dido and the Trojan Prince Ahenius. And he uses that relationship and a jilted love affair, and, and, and Dido was jilted by Ahenius, and Ahenius went off to Italy. He uses that as a device to explain the enmity between the Romans and the Carthaginians, and it's just, it, it's just a romance novel. It, it's just straight fairy tale, because Ahenius, the Trojan prince, would have had to live in the 12th century B.C., at the fall of Troy, and and that date is very fairly well established. And Dido, the queen of Carthage, she lived in the eighth century BC when Carthage was founded, and that is also very well documented. So Virgil is not above making stuff up for poetic with his poetic license. Therefore, he being the only ancient source that I've seen so far, I mean, there might be another one, and, and I can be corrected. I would like to find it. There's a couple of Roman historians I haven't finished reading yet, and, and amongst them are Pliny and Livy. I've only read half of Livy, and, and I hope to, 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 to um, read them in, in the years to come. If I find corroboration for the story, that's good, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen corroboration that's older than Virgil in the first century B.C. So that's why I, 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 I kind of keep that, the, the, the Trojan-British connection on the back burner. Clifton, do you have anything to say about that? Clifton, I think I put him to sleep. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, I, I have my mic off. I'm sorry.
0: Now, do you have to say about that?
1: I was coughing some, so I, I had some coughing fits, so I uh, set the mic off. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm sorry.
1: But anyway, um, among some of the famous Zerah Judaites is Achan of the old Bible. You know, the guy that got the Babylonian gar, garment? and. Uh,
0: yes, he is. Church.
1: So um, I, I don't know how royal he was or how royal he wanted to be, but it appears like he might have wanted to be a banker.
0: Well, well, yeah. It's apparent he wanted to be a banker and maybe buy his way into royalty, right? To continue with, um.
1: Yeah, you could read uh, this next one by uh, the book of Teffy by J. A. Right, well, don't
0: worry, Edward Powell. To continue with your paper,
1: might another fairy tale, and, and maybe you could do something with
0: it. Well, well, right. I will. Back to Clifton's paper, and these are Clifton's words. If this is the true history of Zara Judah, imagine how far off base in people's minds the true history of Zarah Judah would be. And, and let me say that what Perry Edwards Powell wrote, uh, most of it can be corroborated, just not all of it, so I'll leave it at that. To somehow imagine that today's Jews or true Judah is an error beyond all comprehension, for well, they represent a mixed Canaanite variety of Judah, better termed Jews, that they're not true Judah. That's absolutely true. We will now return to Zerah Judah. In the introduction to the book of Tethi by J.A. Goodchild, we find the following comments by Charles A.L. Totten, M.A. Now, now let me let, let me comment on the book of Tethi first. A lot of people read that story, that poem, which is known as the Book of Tephi. Tephi was said to be, I'm not going to say she was, she was said to be a princess from the East who came to Ireland and, and um, married Yokay the Harriman, and, and Jeremiah brought her with Baruch the scribe. And, and some of this has some ground, but its ground is in ancient Irish folklore. I haven't had a chance to study any of it, however, the Book of Teffy is a nice story from the 19th century, which is based on some of the stories from ancient Irish folklore. But the Book of Teffy itself is not ancient. It's a, it, it's a piece of literature. It doesn't represent history or, or historiography. It's based on myths, and, and it's basically um, embellishments of those myths, and, and I'll leave it at that. So I don't necessarily, I don't buy the Book of teffi Let's put it that way. Now to Charles A.L. Totten, M.A. For if Darda, the Egyptian, son of Zara was Dardanus, the Egyptian founder of Troy. And, and I would agree with that. Darda had to be an Egyptian. He was with in Egypt with his father, Zara. So the Greeks would consider him an Egyptian, knowing he came from Egypt. And if Calcol was the Egyptian sea crops or Neol, and the contemporary founder of Athens and Thebes, and, and there I think Totten fell off the boat because Calcol... Calchus, as he was known to the Greeks, is the legendary founder of Pamphylia. Uh, you can't equate him to Cecrops or Nio and the founding of Athens and Thebes, even though Thebes in Greece was a Phoenician city. And if man, the brother of Neo, was likewise the contemporary Egyptian Aganon who inherited Phoenicia, which I wouldn't agree with, and if Mahal, the son of Zara, was the father of these famous Egyptians, was Skitha, or Financia Farsa, the Egyptian ancestor of the Malaysians, whose records, full and complete, enable us to blend the whole into one continuous recital down to the present day, surely we have means at hand in Trojan, Grecian, and Malaysian sources to continue out the record of the sacred chronicles and lend them greater reverence as we come to understand and prize them at their words. Now, now, let me say, uh, I'm not bragging, but I've read most of the major Greek historians and poets. I haven't read the philosophers of, of, of the time before Christ, not all of them, but most of them, and I don't find these Malaysian records which Totten says are full and complete. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what he is referring to. There, there's a book by Totten, and maybe somebody could help me someday, called Secrets of History. I've been trying to get that book for some time. I could never find it. He wrote some other books, and, and I could take them or leave them. Joshua's Long Day. But Totten was a very popular early British Israel writer, and... and um. He's often quoted in Christian identity in British Israel circles. Clifton quoted him here, and that's fine. A, a lot of this is verifiable, but it's not all verifiable, and and some of it's half right. Well, well, that's fine, but I'm not a fan of Charles Todd, not yet anyway. I I had to be sold on a man with citations, and and that's something that a lot of early Christian identity writers were terrible about. They didn't make citations. If you read Clifton's papers or if you read the papers of mine on Christigenia, everything that I say and, and everything Clifton says is cited. And these early British Israel and Christian identity people were horrible about citations. They they just say things. No footnotes, no, oh, I got this from, from such and such or... So-and-so, it's not there. Back to Clifton. This might dumbfound you that this should be the history of Zara Judah. As for Faraz Judah, they mostly went into Assyrian captivity to join with the ten northern tribes. You might well ask, if all this is true, why hasn't my pastor mentioned this? Well, well a great deal of this is true, and, and it is verifiable, and pastors won't mention it. The answer to such a question can be found in Isaiah 29, verses 10 through 13, which says, For Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of of a book that is sealed, which meant to deliver which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore, the Almighty Yahweh saith, forasmuch as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is caught by the precept of man. So, so our, the, the, the blindness of Israel, and, and there's other places as well, is a matter of prophecy. Your, your, your pastors and, and teachers in, in the mainstream world, they're not supposed to. Therefore, whom Yahweh has put to sleep, let no man say he sees or understands. Today, nearly the entire world is under the influence of the false precepts of man, and unless the Almighty removes the spirit of sleep, we can never comprehend the truth. It behooves us, then, to pray to him that this veil of darkness be removed. Yes, there are three tribes, or subhouses of Judah, and the term Judah or as most people incorrectly designate them, Jews, it's not synonymous with the term Israel. Therefore, before passing judgment on the content of this paper, you owe it to yourself to check out these facts to determine its merit. I'm sure there's other things here you have notes here you may want to discuss. Yeah, uh, I've, um,
1: at various times I've written about Judah's sons and, um, uh, and um how they're pla- you know um, how they should be placed in order you know yes and, um, but anyway um i i wrote uh, following the trail of the Scarlet thread a a brochure or an essay you might call it uh and um what i wrote is it is also noteworthy that none of Judah's uh, former sons, Erna, er, Onan, and Shelah, both by a Canaanite daughter of Shua, by, both by a Canaanite, and I should have daughter, comma, daughter of Shua, First Chronicles uh, 2, three, were ever considered royal.
0: Well, well, right, the sons of Shelah were never considered royal. In the uh, in a
1: paper I did on the unpardonable sin, I wrote, There is no future for a fornicator's children, even in the case of Judah, in respect to Er, Onan, and Shelah. We see this at Hebrews 12. 16, and 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, uh, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for ye know how that afterwards when he would have inherited the blessing he was rejected or uh, he was found for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears.
0: Well, well right. Judah... Judah... The, the way I explain this is, is that Esau was a race mixer and found no place for repentance because Yahweh wanted to make an example of him as a race mixer and, and pass the, the inheritance to Jacob. Jacob received the promises to Abraham and other promises in addition to that. Now Judah was a race mixer and he was granted mercy because Yahweh grants mercy as Paul explains to whom he wishes whether they deserve it or not. Judah was granted mercy and and Tamar was used as a vessel by which we would have a true tribe of Judah, or actually two true tribes of Judah, because she had two sons. Now, that wasn't on Judah's account. That was because that was Yahweh's plan. That was Yahweh's design, on account of the promises that Yahweh had made to Jacob, to Judah's father. So Judah received mercy for that reason, where Esau didn't. Esau, he tried to, to, to rectify his sins on his own, and he went out when he realized that his, his um, Canaanite wives were a trouble to his parents. He went out and got himself an Ishmaelite wife. Well, well that wasn't atonement enough to to, 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 to consider Regaining a portion of, of his birthright, he couldn't do it. he couldn't find that mercy he, he He went out and tried to correct himself and and he did just as badly. Ishmael had already been excluded. Well well, Judah did find mercy, but God used Judah's incontinence Judah's tendency to chase after horse to ensure. That, that Judah would have legitimate descendants. And that's the well, then,
1: same on Then I wrote a paper, um, and this has been quite a while ago, The Unseen World Within Our World. And uh, this is what I wrote. It would appear the only way we are going to make any logic out of this um, confusion is to go back to the beginning of the story of Judah. According to the Bible, we are told Judah was the fourth son of Jacob Israel. Uh, um, Judah, we are informed, married a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. By her, Judah had three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The Almighty killed uh, Ur and Onan leaving only Sheila. Upon the death of Judah's wife, Judah, whose intended daughter-in-law, Tamar, dressed up like a whore and uh, enticed Judah to father a set of twins by her name, Perez and Zerah. Uh, because Judah was uh, an eligible widower and Tamar was unwed, the union could not be considered illicit, illicit. Uh, from the um, Perez line came uh, the Messiah. Thus, there were three branches of Judah, one Perez, two Zerah, and three Shelah. Therefore, there were there were Perez Judaites, Zerah Judaites, and uh, Shelahite Judaites.
0: But but Shilla, Shilla comes third <laughs> and Pharez comes first and and we see that in in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew would mention phares the brother of Zara and mentions nothing about Shilah and Shilla is just absolutely overlooked even though the line goes down through firstborn sons for so long and, from Judah and and all of a sudden it just Shalah's just ignored. He's a firstborn son. He's well, well. He's not really a son. He's a bastard. But in in the churchianity viewpoint, he should be the legitimate son. And they don't even address why he skipped over.
1: Yeah, and I I wrote a paper uh, entitled uh, "Unforgivable Sin: Step by Step Explanation." <laughs> This is what I wrote. Now, both the one C liners and the two C liners recognize the three sons of Eve as Cain, Abel, and Seth. The two C liners, however, would recognize Abel as the firstborn of Adam, whereas the one C liners would recognize Cain as Ed Adam's firstborn. Hence, it will be necessary to cite. A similar biblical situation, such a passage can be found at Genesis 38, where uh, twin sons were born to Judah and Tamar. It is recorded at verses 2 through 4 that born unto Judah by the Canaanite daughter of Shua were three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. The usual Hebrew reckoning would be one Ur, two Onan, and three Shelah uh, uh, with Ur as Judah's firstborn. But after Judah's first wife died, leaving him a widower, and Tamar, uh, his intended daughter-in-law, uh, an unwed lawful uh, wife or candidate uh, had twin sons at verses twenty eight and thirty twenty-eight through thirty. But the midwife of Tamar must have had must have been aware that the half breed twin uh she uh, anticipated would be uh, the be, first, be born first. I better read that over. But the midwife of Tamar must have been aware of the half breed twin she anticipated its, be it's first. Well, if Tamar's twins were four and five to Judah, why did it matter which was born first? Like Cain, Er and Onan and Sheila were not counted as legitimate, lawful, uh, like Cain was, you know. What was right,
0: absolutely. I'm, I'm sorry, your word processor must be missing a line or something. You must have dropped a line out in what I you...
1: must I'm, have dropped a line in my reading. It's... Um,
0: But the midwife of Tamar was aware of the half-breed status of the sons born by the Canaanite woman and bound a scarlet thread on the hand of the twin she anticipated would be born first, which was Zara. Well, if Tamar's twins were numbers four and five of Judah's sons, why did it matter which of them was born first? Like Cain, Er, Onan, and Shelah were not counted as legitimate, lawful sons of Judah. Well, I think,
1: I think maybe my uh, eyes are skipping lines, and maybe you can uh, read the last three paragraphs.
0: Right, quoting from Watchman's teaching letter number one fifty nine. In order to sin, one must have at some time been under Yahweh's nuptial agreement, consisting of commandments, laws, statutes, judgments, ordinances, and blood sacrifice for sins, and only the 12 12 tribes of Israel were ever under Yahweh's law. Therefore, it is an impossibility for a non-Israelite to sin, other than the fact that the product of miscegenation is a walking violation or a bastard and can only produce more bastards. In other words, they are sin. A thousand generations, a thousand bastards, for which there is no remedy other than eternal death. Don't blame me. I didn't write the Bible. Even the sin can be sent beforehand to the judgment, but not the product thereof. Take, for instance, Judah, who became a multi great-grandfather to Christ, but also fathered the multiracial Er, Onan, and Shelah by a Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua. Yes, the race mixer can repent, but the bastard, the, the bastard can't, can't be recovered. From Watchman's teaching letter number one sixty-one. At this point, we must ask the question: Why did the midwife use a scarlet thread to identify the firstborn of the twin sons born to Judah and Tamar? Well, well, it signified royalty. This is unusual inasmuch as Judah previously had three sons by the Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua. Why were not Perez and Zara counted as numbers 4 and 5? Had the children born to Judah by the Canaanite woman been considered legitimate Israelite children? The effort by the midwife to identify the firstborn would have been in vain because it wouldn't have made any difference which one was first. What we have in the births of Cain, Er, Onan, and Shelah are walking, walking violations of Yahweh's sovereign will. Today, repulsive as it is, we observe millions of white Adamic Israelite women vomiting illegitimate walking violations out of their wombs, like a sore discharging feces. So it appears that neither Eve nor Judah had a very laudable honeymoon, but both were in the line of Christ. Adam's pure line was preserved to his son Seth, and Judah's pure line was preserved to his twin sons, phares and Zerah. And I gather that's your two C line statement to end our pragmatic Genesis series. Well, thank you for joining me here, Clifton. A lot of the um, people that have been reading your material for years appreciate hearing from you from time to time, as reluctant it is for you to come here. I, I, I understand that. Radio, internet radio is not your forte, and that you're not always entirely comfortable, but it is always wonderful to hear you here. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh and good night. I'll be here Friday, Micah part four, and Saturday, I'll leave it at to be announced. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, everybody. Good night.